let us, let us pray. Almighty God, whose blessed Son was led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan, come quickly to help us who are assaulted by many temptations. And as you know the weakness of each of us, let each one find you mighty to save. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Well, we, uh, we oftentimes imagine things differently than uh, reality. But in our imagination, we think of things just simply different. Then when we experience them, it's like, oh, this is not what I was thinking about. I think that happens uh, frequently in marriage. Becky, like, she just loves those uh, buy-the-dress shows. So, and people just spend fortunes on these weddings. And, uh, and there's, a, there's a thought, I think, that a lot of times we have about marriage might look a lot like a Hallmark movie. And then once you get married, you figure out maybe the Hallmark movie, it's kind of like social media, maybe it only told us the good parts of this. Didn't tell us the bad parts. And my marriage somehow doesn't look like the Hallmark movie that I thought it might be. So I, and this I think also happens with us with kids. So it's it's not there. There are many many times of blissful joy, but it's not a hundred percent like that. There are times where we grow weary of being responsible for other people's lives when we have to be in the midst of their messiness and ours. Now, if you know if if they hadn't brought that and we hadn't brought that, you know things would be better. But it, the reality, a lot of times, is just different than the way we think it might be. Sometimes I think that maybe marriages don't work because there are, our expectations are not met. And, and we're, we're in a society that talks about how our ultimate goal is for us to be happy. So when our expectations are not met, we're disappointed, and then we kind of need to move on. We're not prepared for the long haul. We were prepared maybe for this wedding day, but maybe we weren't prepared, maybe we weren't prepared for the marriage. Maybe we weren't prepared for the length of it, but maybe we had all kinds of planning into the day, but not for the life together as two sinners are joined together. So this commitment then is basically half-baked or it's only somewhat resting in reality. Most of it's in our imagination. And so we have a commitment that doesn't seem to last. We can do the same thing with our commitment to Jesus. So I think what we're going to see through this lesson today is we may presume on our loyalty to Jesus while depending on our own strength rather than relying on the empowerment of the Holy Spirit working in our humble hearts. So we we may presume our loyalty to Jesus while depending on our own strength, rather than relying on the empowerment of the Holy Spirit working in our humble hearts. With Peter, we see a presumed confidence. And I, I think we can... I think we can do this. I think we can have this. 
Over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the scene in the Last Supper. And it's just above in this, in this, uh, same chapter. So, if, you, if, if, uh, my, my page numbers are different, but in 22, uh, there should be a man-made heading over 14 that says Institution of the Lord's Supper. We've covered that and we've moved down through even after this, in the midst of this supper, uh, Judas is called out as the one who's going to betray. Jesus is doing something significant and changing the meaning of this supper entirely. So then they get into this argument among the disciples of who's the greatest and Jesus contrasts this and answers them. Then he calls out Peter and, and foretells about how Peter is going to deny him. It's like this whole uh, dreamy uh, supper because Jesus longed to celebrate the supper with them. The whole thing became a, a, a like a divine train wreck. It was a divine disappointment for Jesus to go through this. It was one disappointment after the other because these guys are literally not catching on what's going on and they're concerned about themselves. So Jesus, in the midst of this, turns to Peter and says, Simon, Simon, this is in uh, thir- verse 31. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Verse 33 says Peter's response. So Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. So this sifting like wheat is the, the wheat is harvested, the wheat is sifted, and then the, and it's through wind, and then the chaff is blown away. And this is what Jesus says Satan has asked to do with Peter. But Peter, very confident in his response, which was a misplaced confidence, he couldn't really understand what lay ahead for him. And as he was making this commitment, he didn't really understand the significance of it. But he was very confident when he said, you know, Lord, I'm ready. I'm going to go with you to prison and to death. Now, I'm sure he meant something like, Lord, I am a strong man and I can do anything I put my mind to. I will stick with you. So what makes him so sure? What is it that he knows or what is it that he thinks he knows that makes him so sure? Now, perhaps Peter has something in common with me where I say I'm often wrong but never in doubt. I I see this in Peter. He's wrong, but he's very confident. Proverbs says that pride comes before the fall. Now, Peter is often the mouthpiece for the whole of the disciples. We hear a lot from him, and many of us can relate to him. Jesus spoke words of blessing and approval upon Peter as he had no other man. He also rebuked him harshly, more so than any other man. In the four Gospels, uh, as the disciples are listed, they are ordered differently. But each one has Peter as being the first to be listed and Judas being the last. And then it, so it doesn't make a lot of difference in the order. Uh, Peter... Judas is the one that you're like, oh, yeah, and, and Judas. 
But Peter's the one who heads up the list for each one of the gospel writers because of the that primacy that he had, that leadership he, he displayed among the disciples. In all of his words, he said some very profound things. Some of the first words we hear him speak, he said some very profound things. He was astounded at the catch of the fish when he first met Jesus. And by the Lord's instruction, he threw his net over to the other side. And it's like, man, we've just been, we've been fishing at it all day. You know, who are you and why are you telling us? We're, we're the fishermen. You're the carpenter. All right, fine. Because you said so, we'll throw the nets over the other side. And then the nets are like breaking because they have so many fish. But what was Peter's response in that? Peter said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He knew that there was something about this Jesus that made him, Peter, not able to stand in his presence. That was profound. That was insightful. That was, that was big. Then in Luke 9, when Jesus asked who they, the disciples, thought he was, Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In that same scene, only seconds apparently, according to what we read later, Peter's also willing to correct Jesus. Now he just identified who he was, and then Jesus says, but I got to go to the cross. I must suffer and die. What's Peter's response to that? Peter says, Far be it from you, O Lord. This shall never happen to you. And that's when Jesus turns to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. So he, he, he knew that Peter didn't have his own thoughts, but had the, Satan's planted this thought in him and is guarding his mind so that he can't understand what Jesus has in store fully. So Peter says some goofy things from time to time. On the Mount of Transfiguration, we talked about it a bit last week. Uh, well, it was Transfiguration Sunday, so I, basically that's what I said about it. But Peter's on the mountain with Jesus. Jesus is in this glory cloud with, there's Jesus, there's Moses, and there's Elijah. Now Moses and Elijah are Old Testament prophets who have been dead forever. Now Jesus is on this mountain with them. This would have been an amazing scene. And Peter was able to be there. So what does Peter do? He says, it's good that we're here with you. I will build three tents. One for you, Jesus. One for Moses. One for Elijah. I think what that means is Peter didn't know what to do with the scene, so he's like, let's capture this. You know, he, he would have at least Instagrammed this if it were today. He, he wanted to take a picture with his cell phone. Let's, let's capture this moment in time and let's stay up here on the mountain because this is pretty cool. And, and when you read commentators on that section, it's like, okay, I don't know what Peter's saying here. Peter, Peter's, Peter's just being goofy here. Well, in the scene, I'm thinking that's why we might act. Well, what would we do? Well, we'd probably come up with something pretty goofy to say as well in the presence of this uh, Lord who is now being semi-glorified along with Moses and Elijah. 
it's Peter's utter humanity that makes him so relatable, that we find appealing. You're like, yes. It, it, in, in, in some Bibles, if, if you were to flip further back in the New Testament, you'll find the book of Peter. If it were the King James Version, it might say Saint Peter on it. And so sometimes we're used to calling these people saints, and so we lose maybe the reality of their humanity. But Peter shows us that humanity. And in, in his actions, in what he says and what he does, in his, uh, both those right actions and wrong actions, he instructs us. He's a great teacher for us, and we're so, we can relate to him so well. But it's this night of the, this fall that perhaps teaches us his greatest lesson. You see, Peter didn't listen closely as the Lord instructed him. Because he knew what to expect, Peter did. Well, so he thought. He didn't, but he thought he did. So he didn't really listen. He didn't take to heart what Jesus was saying to him. This is a problem that I think we we all can frequently have, but I think uh, it's one of those things with like gifted athletes that sometimes they don't want to take instruction from somebody who uh, maybe is really older, wiser, has been there, done that, but maybe they're not as gifted as this gifted athlete, so they think, well, I really don't need to listen to this person, so they don't. And so they kind of handicap themselves because they are not willing to take instruction. My son used to play rec league football, and uh, it's not that he was terribly gifted. Uh, he was good for that group. It, that was that was that was good enough. But he was a captain on the team, and his job was to look to the coach after at the at the end of each play, look to the coach, and the coach was going to give him a hand signal, and then he in turn was going to give a hand signal to the rest of his team so he could pass on the play. Well, play after play after play, JL would just he he wouldn't look at the coach at all. He'd, he'd hold his hand up and give the rest of the team the uh, the play. And I'm like, son, shouldn't you be looking over? And, and he's like, we only have so many plays. And so he wasn't concerned about what the coach had to say to him. He knew what the play ought to be, and so he was just going to call it himself. He didn't need the instruction of the coach. JL was quite proficient. He didn't need the instruction of the coach. He was going to instruct his players without the help of the coach, without the benefit of the coach. I thought that was funny, and it kind of showed me that that concept of we're often wrong but never in doubt, that runs deep in our family. I got that from my dad, and uh, who who he explained his actions that way, and then I live into that, and that's apparently what my son does as well. Peter couldn't see the spiritual battle before him because he was he he was expecting an earthly battle. But Jesus was adamant. In verse 34, Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. Or until you deny three times that you know me. So this spiritual reality is what we want to see. What, what was different? What is it that, what is it that uh, Peter didn't see? What is it that he didn't expect? What was different than his expectations? Well, they left the upper room and Jesus prayed in the garden on the Mount of Olives. Then Peter fell asleep while uh, they were praying. And then the crowd comes to get Jesus. Jesus. Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. 
And Peter is this unnamed disciple who pulls the sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. In multiple gospels, that it's like, and, oh, by the way, and a disciple, uh, one, uh, one in the crowd pulled this uh, sword. Well, the one in the crowd's Peter. Because that's Peter's nature. He's willing to take action. He's ready to do that. He's, he's always the one who's, who's, Mode of operation might be like fire ready aim instead of ready aim fire. He's quick to, he's quick to draw the sword. And then Jesus puts an end to that about this using our swords. And at this time, um, you could see that Peter was serious about defending him as he, as, G, as Peter said he would be. No, Lord, I will go with you even to death or jail. And he pulls out that sword, and, and, and you got all these people coming. And you imagine Peter, and, and, and earlier in that scene in, those, in the verses in, in the neighborhood of 30, he talks about, and there were two swords there, and they were focusing on that. And Jesus was explaining how that, they had the wrong focus, and they were missing the point, as if the two swords would be enough to hold off the Roman soldiers. So here Jesus and, and Jesus and Peter are in the garden. Peter's going to defend him with the sword. And he's thinking, I don't know about the rest of these jokers, Jesus, but I said I'm with you and I'm with you. I'm going to be with you to the end. I will defend you. And I can find the enemy and I will, I will protect you from him. Now, he may have been impulsive, may have been mo- motivated by feelings and emotions, he was definitely dependent too much on his own understanding and his own self as opposed to depending on Jesus and taking instruction. But he was ready to take the enemy for Jesus. But the response that Jesus gives is enough of this. No more. So Peter likely would have thought he would have been praised for his actions. I'm thinking if I were in that scene, I would be expecting an attaboy. Not some correction or rebuke. But this is what Peter receives. Instead of praise for his actions, he receives a rebuke. Then they led Jesus away in shackles, as if he were a dangerous criminal. This is what... Peter was sure back in Luke 9 that Jesus should never have to endure. Peter Peter followed along down the mountain, dejected, unappreciated at this point. You know, all, all I tried to do was protect you, Jesus. I whipped out my sword and did what I could. He's embarrassed. He's in despair. He was prepared for that physical battle, but he wasn't so prepared for the spiritual battle that lie ahead, that now he's in the midst of. Peter had wrong expectations. His inability to deliver Jesus, to deliver Jesus from the enemy's grasp foreshadowed his failure to come. How often do we realize the depth of the spiritual battle that we're in as we follow Jesus. How often are we focused on the physical as opposed to the spiritual in the midst of whatever we're enduring? 
How often do we form Jesus into our own image, or God into our own image, and expect Him to correct our situation, make our life better? And we're asking Him to serve us in the ways we demand, in the way we understand. This is Peter's issue. This is our issue. We can make, we can make Peter seem awfully ignorant. And we can make him seem awfully weak by denying Jesus. But we do this. In this, in the midst of this not good scene for Peter, there's one thing that stands out, and it's that Christ preserves his own. So Christ preserves his own. Now we've got to walk through the passage that Ryan read, and we've got to understand it, and we've got to see that what Jesus prophesied came to fulfillment, but then we've got to back up some, because it's, he, Jesus, does not leave us in this failure of denying him. Look with me, if you will, at 54. We're going to walk through this whole passage a little bit. 54, it says, uh, Then they seized him and led him away, bring him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, uh, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. So Peter lied. He's alone. He's afraid. He's dejected. He's depressed. He feels like he's useless at this point. He has this wrong idea, this wrong image. So all he can do at this point is guard himself. He just wants to take care of himself. Not an uncommon response if we'd been in the same situation. So Peter lies. Then verse 58 it says, And a little later someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. So Peter lies again. He, he denied that he knew Jesus and that he was a follower of Jesus. 59 says, And after an interval, about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. In other places it seems that maybe he was even bringing a curse upon himself. He was very adamantly rejecting any association with Jesus. And you can imagine as the little girl, this young servant girl calls him out, maybe he shifts away from the fire and now he's located in a different place and somebody else sees him and calls him out. So instead of him just sitting there and you're imagining you know, one person after the next right there among the fire saying this, perhaps he's trying to blend into the crowd. His disciples had scattered, and at this, at this point, Peter just wants to be one of these onlookers, one of these people who arrived in town for the Passover. He just wants to be one of the many. 
He doesn't want to be uh, pointed out as being one of Jesus's. He vehemently denies knowing Jesus. He vehemently denies being one of his followers. And it says, and immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Evidently, he didn't hear the shuffling of the feet as they were moving Jesus from one place to the next. And in his particular location, this group that's moving Jesus is bringing him right by. Peter happens to be within eye shot of Jesus. 61 says, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he, Peter, went out and wept bitterly. How have you denied Jesus? How willing are you to be known as one of his disciples? We are in a changing world. It's changing rapidly. And I, and I recognize I just continue to get older, and that helps my perspective. But the world has changed very rapidly in this. We, we live in what I, I frequently talk about, a cultural Christianity land. It's kind of like the Bible Belt. Like, meet anybody on the street and ask them if they know Jesus. I think their answer is going to be yes. Ask them if they're a Christian, their answer is going to be yes. Now, they may not really ever read the Bible, may not ever go to church. They may not really pray. They may never have really cared much of anything about Jesus, but their answer will be yes, because it's a checkbox thing. Surely, I'm a Christian. I'm not a Muslim. I don't know what a Hindu... I, I don't know these other things. Grandma was a Christian. Boom. Yes. Sure. I'm a Christian. Which... Unfortunately, is a thing that we have to overcome when we're talking to friends and family and co-workers about Jesus. There's this period where we have to help them understand that's not what a real believer is so that we can help them become a real believer. But there was a time, and it would have been true here, and it wouldn't have been true here not so long ago, that you would have gained social capital by saying, yes, I attend Parkview United Methodist Church. We had a mayor of the city that used to attend. This is this is where he was. The chief of police used to attend here. You know, Redeemer's only a few years old and there's never been any prestige carried with it. But there are churches in town where there would have been some weight. You said, yes, I'm a member of First Baptist downtown. Today, you could say I'm a member of Fellowship Baptist and in right circles that may still gain some social capital. But for the most part, as our world becomes more and more secularized, the idea that you claim to be part of Redeemer, a Bible-believing church that they would say is conservative because we believe God's word is true, this may cost you social capital may not gain you social capital. may not gain you status. And in fact, in the day, there would be a thing where if you said this, you would gain social capital and, in, and it may improve your opportunities for making sales of real estate. If you're a real estate person, it might make your real estate sales increase. It might help you if you were looking for an advancement in your job, if they knew that you were part of such and such church, it might help you with that advancement. 
in today's world, in today's changing climate, the reality is, is as you commit yourself to Bible-believing Christians, it may cost you not only social capital, but also opportunities to advance even in your career. Now, it's hard for us to hear, and it's hard for us to understand, it's hard for us to believe. But it's true. And it's happening more and more in other places. So, you know, whatever, 20 years, it'll be more so that way for us here, because we're a little behind the times. Except that this, these are some realities. These churches that we have throughout the city that used to be filled with people in the 50s, 60s, they're like empty now. You can go into some of the largest churches around here and find fewer people than we have in this group. Going to church is not a cool thing. And, and as more and more, as we get, become more and more secularized, this following Jesus will incur more and more of a cost. We can begin to feel the pressures of following Jesus and claiming that we know him, particularly if we're young in our faith. This could be a bold move for you. Uh, I spent a lot of time in a, uh, in the lube center business, so I was around, we changed oil quickly, like Jiffy Lube. And in that world, um, we dealt with a bunch of roughnecks. People didn't talk necessarily very nice. And we knew how to talk to customers. But what we would say about things and people and women and so on, it could become rather crude in the place where I worked. And it was, it was in that atmosphere where I really came to faith in Christ. And as time went by, the attitude in the, uh, the, the attitude in the place, the workplace changed. But I know for some of you, particularly, it can be a very bold thing to pull your Bible out at lunchtime when you're on your lunch break, if there are other workers around, co-workers around, to actually pull your Bible out and actually read through your Bible. For, you know, for me at this point, you know, and after all, I am a preacher. I should have a Bible. So if I showed up anywhere with my Bible out, you know, if anybody thinks anything, I won't know if they think anything. I don't care. I'm old. I don't care what they think. Some of you are in a different position than that, and I'd appreciate that. And so it can be, I understand, it can be very bold to actually, like, pull your Bible out and read. Or you say to your employer, sorry, I can't work on Sunday mornings. I need to go to church. Or say to your employer, I need to find another job so I don't have to work on Sundays because I need to go worship the Lord. That takes something from you, and it can be costly to you. I know this. This is hard to follow Jesus and have it go outside this room. It's easy in here. But are you willing to take those risks to be known as one of Jesus' disciples? So Jesus prophesied that Peter would deny him, that he would deny him three times for the rooster crowed, for the morning came. But in the midst of that prophecy, this, this reminds me about a part that we didn't really read there, uh, the next piece in Genesis that we, we read lectionary readings. These were designed readings for today. And I love the Romans passage, so I wanted to read it. The, 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 and the fact that we're all, you know, so we're all still in sin. This is part of uh, Peter's problem is he's still really a sinner. 
as the Romans passage talked about, because of what happened in Genesis in this fall from grace, that we all then have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Nobody is perfect. But in the midst of the curse that came right after where we quit reading, in the midst of the curse, there comes a blessing. I think this is awesome. This reminds me of that. So in the midst of this prophecy to tell Peter he would deny Jesus, Jesus gives him a promise, a promise of blessing. In verse 32, he said, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have returned again, or have turned again, strengthen your brothers. This, this, this is beautiful. So Jesus, yes, prophesied that he would fail. But the power of Jesus praying for him says that Jesus rescues this one, preserves the one who is failing him. We take great heart in this. This is a promise of blessing. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. The Lord was teaching him in his trial. The Lord's teaching you in your trials. He was refining Peter, sanctifying Peter. As his eyes met Jesus' eyes, Peter was cut to the heart. He was just like he was when we picked him up back at the fishing net. He was the sinful man that had no possibility of being in company with Jesus. He was not worthy of the acceptance of Jesus. This is what's going through Peter's mind. Peter remembered his words in the upper room. But Jesus was preserving him and allowing the chaff to be blown away from Peter. He was being sifted. So Peter repented and the sinful man was now a man of power who was given a ministry of strengthening his brothers. So we're, we're looking past the passage and past what the passage says, but we know about Peter and we know some of these things. Peter would simply repent and be restored. He would meet again the risen Savior after the resurrection on the shore and the Lord would say to him, Peter, do you love me? And he would say, yes, I, I love you, Lord. And he'd say, but Peter, do you love me? And he'd say, yes, I love you, Lord. And he said it three times, can I counteract the three denials? There was a repentance and a stripping away of the old self of Peter. This is what our desire is. It's for our old self, our old man, as Paul says, to be stripped away so that we can present ourselves to Jesus as one who is pliable, who is teachable, who is willing to obey. Peter's presumptuous old self had gone away. Now he was humbled, and he didn't look to his own strength, but he looked to Christ alone. And from this point forward, the scriptures tell us about a whole different Peter. Peter is this man of might and power and strength and extreme faith. It happens in Acts 2. This is really not a long time after this reading. By the time Acts 2 comes, Peter gives this bold sermon. It's a beautiful sermon at Pentecost. 
Peter would suffer for Jesus. And he was faithful to the end. At the end, many of the disciples were uh, martyred. They were, they were killed for their beliefs. Many of them were crucified. Peter would have been crucified just like Jesus, but he didn't find himself worthy to die like Jesus. So he has to be hung upside down on the cross. He was humbled and depended upon the strength of the Lord. How have you been humbled? How have you denied Jesus? Where have you hidden in the crowds so that you wouldn't be identified as one of Jesus's? Have you caved to the fear of man and not represented Jesus in your home or your work or your community as you should? The beauty of this story, when we have the whole of it, is that Jesus preserves his own. So if you are like Peter or like me and have denied Jesus, then turn to him. Repent. Thank him for stripping off your old self, your presumptuous, independent old self, so that you have nothing to depend on but him and to be guided by only his spirit. As he is clothing you in his righteousness. Now, then, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Resting in him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray.